Let's pray. Father, we love You and we love our Lord Jesus. We thank You that He so loves us that He has given us His joy and that His joy will be full in us and that no one can take it away. Help us to understand what He meant by that in order that we might ourselves experience this joy that He has promised to us. We ask in His name. Amen. A new way of thinking began to take hold of Europe in the latter 1600s and early 1700s. Unfortunately, I am not talking about the Protestant Reformation. Rather, I am referring to what came to be known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. The Enlightenment emphasized absolute reason while at the same time rejecting the revelation from God uh, or the Bible as God's revelation. Uh, It questioned all authorities and institutions and uh, began to deeply change society. It believed in the perfectibility of people as individuals as well as the perfectibility of society as a whole. The Enlightenment thinking continues today. It's moved on from what uh, was originally uh, Enlightenment uh, uh, principles, but the basic foundation remains. Uh, So it has given rise to the ideas of modernity, post-modernity, and whatever uh, comes after post-modernity. Enlightenment thinking has led to a more secularized society. This in turn led society to question some of the most basic and commonly assumed truths that had guided uh, Europe for many hundreds of years. People began to question the purpose of life. They began to question the nature of truth. They even began to question the meaning of happiness. Without the Bible as a guide, society began to look to individual thinkers to guide society. So these individual thinkers would guide society into uh, new ethical standards, into new cultural attitudes and mannerisms, even into new concepts of truth and new remedies for our personal and cultural failings. One of the reasons why there's uh, so much unease in our society today is that um, our government is aggressively trying to force our country to bend to these new standards by force of law. And the recent Supreme Court decision regarding homosexual marriage is only one among many um, one among many ways that our lives are being herded like cattle into the stalls of uh, secular systems uh, for living our lives. As I said, because the Bible was rejected, uh, they began to look to, to uh, human beings, to individual thinkers, even to individuals, even to groups of individual thinkers as we now know today as, uh, as um, think tanks that are shaping uh, the way that we should live in a post-biblical society. 
one of the chief questions that they are assuming to answer for us is how to live a happy and fulfilled life. And I say all that to introduce to you uh, one such thinker that lived in the 20th century. Uh, many of you already uh, know a, a, a good deal about him. I'm speaking of Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was born in 1899. He grew up to be America's greatest novelist. He was a thoroughgoing atheist. He hated his mother simply because his mother was a strong Christian and tried to raise him with a Christian worldview and with Christian morals. What is surprising is that Hemingway was incurably committed to a moral system. And he believed that everyone should live according to this moral system that he was uh, uh, propounding to the world. Uh, but his moral system was not in any way related to biblical morality. It was, as he described it, the truth of his own sensations. In other words, it was the truth of his own devising. One of his biographers describes how his moral system was ingrained in his novels. He never preached. He never said, you need to do this. Even in his novels, he, he, he didn't have any characters like, uh, like the preacher in Moby Dick who preached the long uh, sermon in the middle of the, uh, the novel. But rather, uh, through the, the movement and the action of the characters uh, is the way that his moral system was, uh, was, was communicated. And one of his biographers uh, says, his novels are novels of action that make them novels of, ide of ideology because, Heming because to Hemingway there was no such thing as a morally neutral action. To him, even a description of a meal is a moral statement since there are right and wrong things to eat and drink and right and wrong ways to eat and drink them. Almost any action can be performed correctly or incorrectly or to be more precise as um, Hemingway would put it, more nobly or ignobly. One of the things that Hemingway liked to say is that a writer's job is to tell the truth. Hemingway's quest for truth looked inward first so that he could see himself more clearly. Another biography of Hemingway said that his writing was a way of approaching his identity, of discovering himself in the projected metaphors of his experience. Hemingway believed that if he could see himself clear and whole, his vision might be useful uh, to others who also live in this world. And this sounds noble and admirable that he is going to inspect himself so that he can find the truth out about himself so that he can help others live according to truth. But there's one big, really, really big problem. Hemingway was an incurable liar. Uh, and the lies are just outrageous. He wrote to his father that he was engaged to this movie actress and went into great detail about the engagement ring, how much the engagement ring cost. Problem is, he had never, ever met this actress. Um, 
he wrote about his past as a professional boxer in Chicago. He was never a professional boxer. Uh, he, wrote in, he wrote newspaper articles uh, for publication about his experiences in the 69th Infantry Regiment during World War I. He never served in the military. It was also a lie when he uh, wrote that he was wounded when he led a charge uh, in one of the famous battles. He went into great detail about the many war injuries that he sustained. Uh, he said he was hit. I don't even know how he... This was a, a newspaper article. I don't know how he would think that anybody would believe this. He said he was hit 32 times by a 45 caliber machine gun fire. And he said he was so badly wounded that the Catholic nurses baptized him when he was brought into the field hospital because they thought he was on his deathbed. This from a man who never served a day in the military in his life. The only time he was ever shot, besides the time he died, uh, was when he accidentally shot himself in the leg during a, a drunken stupor. I could go on and on. Many of his lies are not repeatable simply because of their how how crude and and uh, vile they are. My wife, I was reading some of these things to her, and she said, well, "You're not going to say that in the pulpit, are you?" No, there's no way. Uh, he was a vile man. His his lying, his habitual lying, was not his only fault. His violent treatment of his four different wives, his many adulteries. His self-righteousness, his egoism, his jealousies, and we could go on and on. And his alcoholism was the stuff of legend. He woke up every morning at 4 a.m. to get his first drink of the day. And his brother said that, that uh, Hemingway would drink at least 17 scotch and sodas a day in addition to taking a bottle of champagne to, to, uh, with him to bed at night. But you don't hear about this when you hear people speak of Hemingway. People speak of him as this grand adventurer, as the paragon of rugged American individualism. He became one of the most influential existentialists of the 20th century. And though he's been dead for 50 years, he continues to be a, moral, a great moral influence on our society. Unfortunately, the moral influence is purely self-seeking morality that he advocated. I tell you all this about Hemingway um, to paint a black canvas upon which to, to paint the glory and grace of God that Jesus promises to His disciples. Hemingway built his whole moral system and his whole life on the pursuit of personal happiness. He had the intellect. He was a tremendous intellect. And he had the wealth. His books sold many, many copies. He was a very wealthy man. And he had the, he had the ambition to pursue happiness like few others. What he ended up with is far from anybody's definition of happiness. But look at what Jesus promises to His disciples. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 in chapter 16, So also you have sorrow now that I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take your joy from you. He's saying that He gives a joy that cannot be destroyed. A joy that cannot be stolen. A joy that cannot be diminished. In other words, Jesus promises full, solid, eternal, invincible, unshakable joy. And the promise is for all who trust and follow Him. This promise is for you and for me. For all who trust in Jesus Christ. Why does He make this promise? What's happening in this passage is that Jesus is continuing to encourage His disciples as we've seen uh, the, the past several weeks. I guess the weeks have moved into months now if we've been in, in uh, John 14 through 16. But He's been encouraging His disciples because they are only a few hours away from His betrayal. Uh, last week we saw how He encouraged them by telling them about their long-range uh, ministry. How they would be tasked um, by the Holy Spirit and would be used by the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now, in verses uh, 16-24, through 24, he is uh, telling them how He is going to provide for them over the next three days. He's telling them that they will not see Him. Why will they not see Him? Because He's going to be in the grave for, for the next three days. Because He's going to be betrayed in a few hours, crucified uh, the next day, and then gloriously, gloriously rise from the dead on uh, the first day of the week. And so He says, you will have sorrow, but I'm going to return to you. And when He returns to them, their sorrow for His death will become pure joy. So let's look at verse 22 very closely. Uh, notice the progression of thought in Jesus' statement. He's saying here that they will have sorrow because of His absence, but He will see them again. In other words, He'll be reunited to them and then their hearts will rejoice. And then finally he says, no one will take their joy from them. This is important. Uh, this progression here that we see in verse 22. Because here we see the source of their joy. They're going to rejoice when He is reuni reunited uh, with them. In other words, Jesus is the source of their joy. He promises no other joy here in verse 22. He says, You're, you will have joy when you're reunited to Me. You will have joy when you see Me again. So what He's saying is that only being with Jesus is the true source of unshakable joy. You cannot have the joy of the Lord unless the Lord is your joy. Amen. The text does not guarantee joy to anyone unless Jesus is their joy. Jesus will not give His joy to anyone except those who rejoice in Jesus. Jesus is the only permanent joy. He says at the end of verse 22, and no one will take your joy from you because Jesus is their joy. If Jesus is not your joy, if He is not your chief delight, and this passage should serve as an invitation for you to flee to Jesus right now. If your joy is 
chiefly in money or in success or in your family or in your hobby or in sexual gratification or in being liked by others or in finding true love or in being admired or since uh, college football started a couple of weeks ago and professional football starts today, if your joy is in college or pro sports, or even if your joy is in church, then Jesus is calling you to repent and to receive Him as your chief joy. Nothing in this world besides Jesus Christ. The reason why Jesus must be your your joy is because if anything else supplants Jesus as your chief joy, then that which supplants Jesus is an idol. Idols may satisfy for a moment, but the, the joy that Jesus promises will last forever. The satisfactions we get from idols are deceptive. They deceive us into believing this or that, And we believe if we can just have that idol in its fullness, then our joy will be complete. Idols do not satisfy us. They victimize us. Ultimately, they steal our joy because we give ourselves to them. And just like children who dream of that... uh, that gift on Sunday morning, I mean on uh, Christmas morning, you think of that toy. You know, for three months they began telling their parents about this toy. Make sure you get this toy. That's all that they are focused on. And then about a week after Christmas, you know what happens. It gets discarded because there's some new commercials on TV that's captured the child's attention. And idols um, work that way in our lives. Uh, once we possess it fully, what it ends up doing is possessing us fully. And then it doesn't satisfy. How do we know we will always have this joy if we make Jesus our joy? The reason we know that this joy can never be taken away from us is Jesus rose from the dead. That's what He's telling His disciples. You'll have this joy because you're going to see Me again because I'm going to rise from the dead and I will return to you. The death He died to sin, He died once for all. And then He rose from the grave. He will never die again. He is our eternal Savior. That means that we will always have this joy in Jesus because we always will have Jesus Christ our Savior. He will never go away in the sense that He left His disciples by being buried in the grave for three days. And because He rose from the grave, remember going back to the first part of chapter 16 and back into 15 and even back into chapter 14, because He rose from the grave, He has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in our soul. Romans 5 verse 5 says, Hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. We could substitute the word hope for joy. Joy does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God's also given us prayer. Verses 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of Me, 
Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked, I'm sorry, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Notice the purpose of God in answering our prayers in verse 24. Why does He answer our prayers? So that our joy may be full. What kind of prayers is God guaranteeing to answer here in verses 23 and 24? Well, without going into to any detail because of the time, it is safe to say that since our joy will only be full when Jesus is our joy, then we can assume that God wants us to pray specifically that we will desire Jesus even more. Ernest Hemingway had everything that the world could offer in the pursuit of happiness. And he pursued it without constraint. Where did it get him? On July 2nd, 1961, when he was only 61 years old, he walked down into his basement, he loaded his double-barrel shotgun, and literally blew his brains out. Don't chase that which will not satisfy. Pursue Jesus. He delights in you seeking Him. And you will find Him. And He will give you His joy, which is unshakable. I want to use hymn number 538 for my closing prayer. If you want to follow along and pray with your eyes open, fine, so be it. But please know that we are praying to God and I pray that you would, or I would ask that you would pray along with me. Hymn number 538. Let's pray together. More about Jesus would I know. More of His grace to others show. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn. More of His holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus in His Word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing His voice in every line, making each faithful saying mine. More about Jesus on His throne, riches and glory all His own. More of His kingdom, sure increase. More of His coming, Prince of Peace. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for me. Hear our prayers, Lord. Give us that joy that is unshakable because You have given us Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.